Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Alberta's shot across the bow. There's no fight to be had because there's no negotiation with the federal government over this issue. The province's justice minister says Alberta prosecutors will take over firearm charges in the new year as the federal government's own gun bill stalls in Parliament. What impact will the declaration from Alberta have? Also... We want to make sure that our regime and the Quebec regime are very similar and very much aligned. Amending the Official Languages Act. The Trudeau government's attempt to promote French across the country is coming under attack from many sides. Coming up, we will hear from Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor. And... With Russia cutting off natural gas supplies and no LNG from Canada, Germany signs a 15-year deal with Qatar. Has Berlin given up on Ottawa? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sarabio. The government's attempt to have its signature gun bill passed in the House before the holiday break failed. There are serious questions about the bill and its effect on hunting weapons, so committee members, they want more consultation. But as that happens in Ottawa, Alberta is now signaling its provincial prosecutors will determine when to pursue charges under the Firearms Act and not federal prosecutors. Take a listen to the Alberta Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, followed by the reaction from Federal Minister, David Lametti. I have directed that the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service take over the handling of charges involving the Firearms Act starting January 1st, 2023. Currently, the federal government handles cases involving the Federal Firearms Act. Provinces have the constitutional jurisdiction to handle federal criminal law charges, including charges under the Firearms Act. Alberta's Crown Prosecution Service already has the expertise to take on this work and any further resources will be provided. I would expect, as is the case with all other criminal code provisions and, 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 uh, and federal criminal statutes, um, that police officers will enforce the law. And prosecutors, and it is mainly, as I've said, provincial prosecutors across Canada, members of the provincial, provincial crowns, um, who prosecute those offences. Uh, it would be extraordinary if, if uh, they made a unilateral decision not to uh, enforce the law. That would not only offend the Constitution, but would also offend the rule of law. So to talk about the issue, let's bring in our journalist panel for this week. Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Golden Mail. Susan Delacourt is a national columnist for the Toronto Star. And Tyler Dawson is the Alberta correspondent for the National Post. Hello to the three of you. Hello. Hello. Uh, Tyler, I'm going to get you to start us out here. Uh, Minister Shandro says the government will not be directing Crown prosecutors. Uh, rather, uh, they'll be providing advice on how to proceed with firearm charges. Does this fall under a constitutional challenge or is this just political theater? Well, I think it's probably more on the political theater side of things. Um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, they're not forcing prosecutors to do something one way or the other. They, they're setting out sort of guidelines where they think that these charges would be justified and where they wouldn't be. And then the prosecutors, the crowns remain sort of independent on this. Um, 
So what they choose to do sort of remains to be seen. But I would also just quickly add that this isn't entirely unusual or unheard of. Um, British Columbia largely didn't prosecute cannabis offenses for a long time. Um, Quebec in the 1970s and 80s didn't really prosecute abortion when it was still a crime. Um, so it, this isn't totally uncharted territory, but it, it certainly sets the stage, I think, for a political confrontation. Mm -hmm. And to that, you know, Susan, Ottawa does continue to to respond with this kind of wait and see attitude. Uh, what kind of political hot potato is the Alberta Declaration for the Trudeau government and even the opposition parties? Well, I think it, it becomes a political hot potato when it feeds into other stories, you know, that, um, for example, Danielle Smith's um, bill to, uh, you know, uh, exempt Alberta from or or. I don't even know how to put it to uh, to prevent Alberta from uh, going along with the, the laws it doesn't like. I think you're seeing with Ottawa that it's saying we're going to deal with the people of Alberta. No, we're not going to have government fights. I, I think you'll you'll hear more of that from them. I don't think they are in the mood for a constitutional fight. And what they'll be framing this as. Canadians aren't in the mood for constitutional fights either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Robert, do you think Chandra's statement will have any kind of impact on uh, the Trudeau government's gun legislation? Look, uh, the, the federal government was boneheaded in uh, changing the legislation at the last minute to include uh, the kind of hunting uh, weapons that are used by hunters and, and the Inuit uh, and, and farmers these are uh, guns that uh, are used by, you know, people who live in rural areas who like to hunt or like to make make sure that if they're farmers that they can shoot, uh, you know, coyotes or whatever, maybe preying on their on their uh, livestock. And certainly, uh, it's the weapons that are used by the uh, indigenous people who like to go hunting for moose or for seal or whatever. And you know, it's mind boggling that they didn't go and ask a couple of rural liberal backbenchers to say, what about this? If they did, they wouldn't have done this. And it's, it feeds into a narrative for uh, Daniel Smith that this government is out of touch with Alberta, out of touch with rural Canada. So they've gone back to the drawing board on that. Um, but it's the government, the federal government's fault in this one, where I think they really overplayed their hands because they didn't think it through. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's obviously something we're going to watch. Uh, the House has risen for the year, so we're going to watch that in the new year. Uh, let's talk about health care as well. And, and Susan, I'll get you to start us off on this because, you know, Ottawa and the provinces, as we all know, at an impasse right now. But to hear it from Minister Duclos, the, the health ministers have some kind of a deal or perhaps basis of a deal to move forward. So, so Susan, is this impasse also political theater? I am wondering how this is going to be sorted out. I'm of two minds at the moment. There, There is obviously some sort of impasse, whether it's theatrical or uh, just logistics. I don't know whether it's going to be solved by a meeting between the first ministers. I'm starting to think that this government is going to handle this the way it has done childcare deals, for example, with one deal with each province and building up to some sort of national patchwork program um, or patchwork reforms of the healthcare system. I, I do think there is, we, we saw this during the, the convoy hearings, governments talk to each other very differently apparently behind the scenes than they do in front of the cameras. So it, it would not surprise me that there are more constructive discussions going on as, as Minister Duclos has, has hinted. But 
I, I still don't know whether we're going to be going to a first minister's meeting on health or more of a child care type of arrangement. Mm-hmm. We have to wait and see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Robert, the prime minister says he, he needs a commitment from the provinces uh, to change delivery before any more money flows out. And it has me wondering, what exactly is he looking for here? Are we talking about national standards? Are we looking for specific policy planks? What exactly is Trudeau waiting for? Well, I mean, they're they're looking for, um, we, we, there are solutions out there that fix the healthcare system. It's been provided by healthcare professionals from doctors and nurses, and, and the feds are looking at it as well. And, and what they're saying is, look, let's have a modern data sharing uh, system between the provinces so we can streamline the process. Let's make sure that we can figure out a way to recognize foreign credentials of doctors and, and nurses. And let's do more about retention and training of healthcare officials. Those are kind of the three, three or four main issues that need to be resolved in this. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing is political games between, which is the same old stuff we hear all the time between the provinces and the the federal government over money. And I agree with Susan. I think the federal government is simply going to say, you know what, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to cut individual deals with individual provinces to achieve our goals. And we'll cut uh, and we'll cut checks for, for them for provinces who agree to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, Tyler, I'm wondering as someone outside the Ottawa bubble, uh, how is this uh, stalemate being perceived, do you think? I think people are mostly concerned about the stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the deal at this moment. You know, I, I think the issues are emergency room wait times and the issues are children's hospital overcrowding and surgery cancellations and things like that. You know, I, I think to some extent, you know, at least the people in my life who've had contact with the medical system recently, um, you know, they're not paying all that much attention to what's going on between the health ministers. They're far more concerned about the level of service and the care they're getting um, when they need it. So I think those two issues have the potential to merge in the months ahead. But, you know, at this moment, you know, I just I think that most people are more concerned with sort of the, the immediate issue in front of them and not sort of questions of money and funding and agreements on data sharing and things like that. It, it's just it, seems like too much, you know, when you're struggling to find a family doctor or waiting for eight hours in an emergency room. Yeah, but I think that goes to, to the question of, like, who, who does this fall under? Who are people blamed for this? Is it the provincial level or the federal level? What would you say to that, Tyler? Well, I think it probably varies a little bit by province, if I, if I had to speculate. Um, but certainly in Alberta, I think a lot of the blame is falling on the provincial government. Um, you know, there there is sort of this healthcare reform attempt going on in Alberta right now. There has been a really ugly relationship between the government and doctors for quite some time. The pandemic handling or mismanagement, depending what sort of side of the question you're on, still lingers. So I do think here, at least, it's the provincial government that, that is getting the brunt of it. But of course, that could change. You know, if, if the province starts saying, well, look, we can solve these problems if Trudeau comes to the table, all of a sudden that becomes a pretty different, uh, different perception, I think. Okay, so another one that we're watching for, and really we're going to watch for a lot because, as I said earlier, the, the House has now risen for the holiday break. Uh, they are back at the end of January, and since this is our, our, our last panel before the new year, I'm kind of wondering what each one of you will be watching out for in 2023. Uh, there's already talk of a cabinet shuffle. Uh, of course, we're going to wait for the Rouleau report. Robert, uh, start us off. What are you watching out for? Well, I, I want to see what the, the government, uh, what Krista Freeland is going to do in the budget. Um, to uh, set out uh, a framework for an industrial policy. Look what has happened in the United States. Uh, President Biden has uh, has announced billions of dollars to 
to manufacture microchips and chips uh, in the United States. He's brought in um, massive infrastructure uh, legislation to be able to rebuild American roads and cities. And he has brought in this enormous package. It's called the Inflation Reduction Bill, but it's actually about green technology, electric cars, the whole gamut. And, you know, this is going to mean that the United States is going to be uh, an epic center for, for potential e uh, economic growth and, and a re revitalization of its manufacturing base. And we better get, in, get ahead of this. Um, because we we can't let it all go to the United States, so we need to. I think we need to match this in scope and in vision, and we'll see whether they do that in the budget. Susan, what are you uh, looking for in 2023? A few things. I'm glad Bob mentioned the states. I'm, I'm looking for a Biden visit. Uh, Joe Biden has not yet been to this country as president. Uh, he came as vice president. Um, I'm looking also at the relations between the government and its opposition parties. I want to see if the Liberal NDP deal holds. And I also want to watch the evolution of Pierre Polyev as Conservative leader. We've already seen that there's been a tone shift from how he ran for opposition, and I want to see the continuation of that uh, education of Pierre Polyev. Mm -hmm. And Tyler, what are you looking out for? I, I'm going to have to put a bit of an Alberta spin on it. I'm interested <laughs> to see what the liberals and the conservatives do once the Alberta Sovereignty Act begins to be used. Um, does, do the liberals finally see an advantage to really having a fight over this? Does Pierre Polyev see an advantage to sort of backing the Alberta approach or is he going to try and stay out of it? So I think that is the dynamic, uh, at least from where I'm sitting, that I'm going to be keeping an eye on next year. Well, you're not alone. Many people across the country will be keeping an eye on that as well. Uh, listen to the three of you, to, to Robert, Susan, Tyler, thank you for the time today. Uh, have a happy holiday, and uh, I'll bug you to join us again in the new year. <laughs> happy holidays to you. You too. Thanks happy new year. Happy holidays. Thank you. Take care. As Parliament breaks for the holidays, one signature piece for the government did not get passed. Bill C-13, the Trudeau government's attempt to modernize the Official Languages Act. The bill itself has been stuck at the committee stage at it is, as it is being criticized rather by many. So where is it now? Where will it go in the new year? To answer those questions, we're now joined by the Minister for Official Languages, Jeanette Petipa-Taylor. Minister, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Now, the original plan uh, was to have Bill uh, C-13, uh, again, the, the bill to modernize the Official Languages Act. The, the plan was to have it passed before Parliament adjourned. Uh, that did not happen. How disappointed are you? Well, I have to say, uh, like many interveners and stakeholders across the country, my hope was that we were going to have the passing of the Act and at least have it in the Senate. But that is not where we're at now. The bill is presently, as you're probably well aware, still in, in front of committee members uh, doing the clause by clause at this point in time. So we'll have to come back uh, in January and then from there st uh, continue the work that is being done. But I'm hopeful that it will be, we'll be seeing the passage of, uh, of the legislation in a very timely fashion. Now, Anglophone groups within Quebec criticize the bill because it recognizes French as a minority language within Canada North America, but it doesn't recognize English as a minority language within Quebec. What do you say to that? Well, I think when we look at these, the numbers across the country uh, and even in North America, we have to acknowledge that French is the minority language uh, in Canada and also in North America. And if we really want to reach substantive equality with both official languages, we certainly have to do more in order to promote, to promote the French language. 
We do realize that the Anglophones in Quebec are the minority a community in Quebec. However, overall nationally, French is still the minority language. Uh, but I guess the concern is if it does not specifically state that English is a minority language within Quebec, then their rights become that much more tenuous. Well, actually, we had some um, witness experts that appeared before the Senate and the Parliamentary Committee, and the former Chief Justice uh, Basterash, who was a Supreme Court Justice, made it very clear, and he said that English-speaking Quebecers will lose no rights when it comes to Bill C-13. So at the end of the day, no rights will be removed from Anglophones in Quebec. That is absolutely not our intent at all in this legislation. But what we want to do is to make sure that we do all that we can to preserve our French language, because we know that French is in decline across Canada. Well, again, uh, if it's not codified, though, does it make the Anglophone community more vulnerable? Whether or not that's the intent, if it's not actually codified, how are they protected down the road? You, your government may have perfect intentions, but uh, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if they're not codified, how do we ensure that Anglophone rights within Quebec are protected? With respect to the legislation, make it, let me be very, very clear. There are absolutely no rights that are taken away from Anglophones in Quebec. With respect to Bill C-13, we want to ensure that all minority communities across the country are protected, and that includes Anglophones in Quebec and Francophones outside of Quebec. However, we also have to recognize that nationally, as I've indicated, that the Francophone language, the French language, is in decline. And we have to make sure that we do our due diligence to make sure that we don't see those numbers decrease even more. So my message to Anglophones in Quebec, we absolutely will not and do not, uh, with this legislation, we will not be taking any rights away. We simply want to make sure uh, that, again, that we do what we need to do to make sure that our Francophone language does not disappear. And that is the intent of Bill C-13. And we're really hoping forward that we're going to be able to move forward fairly quickly because stakeholders across the country have told me on numerous occasions that the longer that we wait, the more that, we are going to, that we're going to miss out on. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, I, I take your points that you're making here, but the, the Bloc Québécois, they want more of this bill. They want French to be the predominant language within the federal civil service in Quebec. If the bill itself acknowledges, as you do, that French is a minority language under threat within Canada and within North America, why not make that amendment to make French the predominant language within the civil service in Quebec? Well, I think with respect to what we're talking about, with Bill C-13, we're talking about the federal government taking its responsibility when it comes to protecting and promoting French all across Canada and also in Quebec. We are really working within our, our you know, um, in our area that we're responsible for. And as a government, it's really important uh, that we take our responsibility. The federal government, we are the first government to recognize that French is in decline in this country. And we want to make sure that in federally regulated areas that we have a regime in place that Francophones in Quebec will be able to work in their language and also be served in their language. But aside from Quebec as well, I come from New Brunswick. I also want to make sure that in areas where we have a high proportion of, of Francophones, that those um, rights will also be available to them. So moving forward, again, we certainly want to make sure that the federal government takes its responsibilities in protecting and promoting French, and that's exactly what we're doing. And finally, the other quick thing that mm -hmm, I should add, mm -hmm. the regime that we've also put in place, Michael, uh, with respect to federally regulated areas, the regime that we put in place is very, very similar and aligned to the one that uh, Quebec has put in place, because we wanted to make sure that people didn't opt in or opt out of a regime because one was easier than the other. So we've really made sure that our two regimes are quite aligned. Well, you say 
say opt-in, opt-out. We, we've also heard concerns around indigenous language rights. The Assembly of First Nations, uh, they do not believe that there should be a requirement to operate in French should, uh, or rather the requirement to operate in French. They don't believe that that should prevent any indigenous person from getting a job. Well, with respect to the Official Languages Act, we've made it very, very clear uh, in our preamble that we absolutely recognize the importance of Indigenous languages within Canada. We know that we have over 70 Indigenous languages within this country, and it's very important that we do all that we can to preserve and to promote those languages as well. It's, a, it's, it's an identity issue, it's a cultural issue, just as our two official languages are. So in no way do we want to do anything uh, to undermine uh, the development of those languages. Minister, really appreciate the time today, and if I don't get a chance to say it, happy holidays. Thanks to you. On Saturday, Germany's Chancellor will join other top officials in a port town known as Wilhelmshaven to inaugurate a floating terminal for liquefied natural gas. Now, this ship will play an important role as Germany continues to look and secure new sources for fuel. The country right now dealing with limited supplies and unable to rely on Russia as it has for decades for natural gas. To talk about this, we're now joined by Sabine Schwarzwasser. She is Germany's ambassador to Canada. Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to begin with the situation right now in Germany as to how challenging it might be. What are conditions right now in the country? Uh, to read uh, the, the latest news, it is dealing with the coldest winter in decades, fuel supplies compromised. What does that mean for everyday life in Germany right now? Well, um, uh, the, uh, it, I, we don't know yet if it's going to be the coldest winter, but definitely winter. Um, ever since the attack of Russia against Ukraine, uh, Germany has done its absolute best to get out of the dependency on Russian energy. And so um, we have filled up our energy reservoirs. They're now up to 95% full and should last um, uh, for a number of months through the winter. We've also done our very best to diversify. So you talked about the Chancellor uh, opening uh, the first LNG port in Germany. Um, that has been uh, decided upon um, uh, shortly after the attack um, on Ukraine on the 24th uh, of February. And we are going to have five, altogether five, LNG ports, um, I think, by the end. We're really trying to speed that up in order to be able to diversify uh, where we get our energy from. So we've upped our uh, LNG uh, imports from Norway, from the U.S., from Qatar. Um, that is an important part. The other things we do, uh, apart from uh, gas and oil, uh, try and go um, uh, more into renewable energies. And we've upped our ambition and we're pushing very hard now to build up our renewable energy capacity. Um, we want to get um, uh, CO2 neutral now by 2045 build much, much more renewable energy in Germany, but also we want to invest, and we are investing actually major, into uh, hydrogen, which is going to be the big energy of the future that Germany wants to import. 
Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, while the German Chancellor uh, was here in Canada in August, he was looking for LNG from Canada. Uh, instead, as you say, uh, other sources have now been secured by Germany. I'm wondering if Canada might still be able to supply your country with any other fuel sources. Uh, for example, there is right now a focus on uh, hydrogen production in Canada. That's right. And uh, the big result and actually one of the big purposes of the visit um, of the Chancellor to Canada was to work on a green hydrogen bridge across the Atlantic. And this is what the result was. Uh, so uh, we see Canada as um, a superpower, potential superpower. When it comes to hydrogen, it has all the conditions um, in order to become that kind of power, and we see it as a prime supplier for Germany and for Europe on hydrogen. We would also like to have LNG from uh, Canada, as we do from many, many other countries, um, uh, and we're still talking about potential LNG um, from the East Coast and maybe even with um, uh, swaps from the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, in addition to all of this, uh, of course, uh, there's a time lag between getting all these alternate sources of energy and, and what the German people are dealing with with uh, in this moment in time. So how important is the buy-in with the German people? Because there's also right now, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, a push for people to truly conserve. Oh, absolutely. The energy saving is very much part of the drive that we have to have in order to overcome uh, the sudden energy shortage uh, that we have by getting out of Russian energy. So we need, Germany needs to save 20% of energy. Um, A part of that will be done by a very strong push for energy efficiency. So we do heat pumps, we do energy efficient buildings, um, uh, putting solar on every roof of every new building. That's part of it. The other part is also appealing to people and say, turn the heat down, save on traveling, uh, use public transport. And right now, I think um, it does look good. Energy consumption is going down. A third of our energy consumption is our industry. And again, German industry has um, managed to save, I think, some 15 to 20 percent of energy Um, uh, 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 over the last few months, they've come up with ways of cutting down on their energy needs. This is not without um, sacrifices for the population and for the the industry, uh, but that's what we need to do. So a, a measure of conservation, alternate sources, uh, new uh, new sources, renewable sources of energy. Uh, is there any idea when Germany will be able to declare uh, energy independence, if you will, from Russia? Well, we are energy independent from Russia because nothing is coming from Russia anymore. We The gas pipelines um, have stopped. Uh, we're out of Russian oil and gas. So in that sense, um, uh, that supply, uh, which was 55% of our energy needs, um, has been cut. Uh, uh, we have been able uh, to fill, as I said, the reservoirs at high cost. It costs a lot of money and that is a burden on the population. It is very hard for people suddenly to see their energy costs triple. And that's why our uh, government has uh, taken a lot of measures to cap prices, to compensate, to help 
those who are most in need in Germany, the social, um, the, 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 the people who are challenged with the high prices particularly. Uh, but all of that is not easy. But on the other hand, I think it will also um, give Germany an enormous push uh, to go towards renewable energies. And that is the ultimate goal get out of energy dependency by having more renewables um, and to bank on hydrogen, which is uh, going to be the one energy we want to continue importing uh, over the long term. Ambassador, really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you for your time and uh, happy holidays. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to you. And that is our program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. We'll see you again on the weekend.